0: Well, good morning again. I'm excited for us to be in the second part of our series called The Resurrected Life. It's a timely series for the Easter season. Even though we honor and remember Jesus' resurrection every week, we have an opportunity that the world is paying attention and wants to hear from us. What's this hope that's within you? And so we're talking about The Resurrected Life. And last week, uh, we began by looking at how the scriptures teach that we are going to be like Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Someday at the final resurrection, when our bodies are redeemed, we're going to be made like him. And there's so many things about that that can be confusing. Uh, But we looked at how uh, remarkable the continuity is between Jesus before his resurrection and after, that the marks are still in his hands, that he eats food, that he says to the disciples, I'm not a spirit, I have flesh and blood. And then later they'll write in the New Testament letters, we're testifying about what we saw and about what we touched with our own hands. And so Jesus' resurrection as a first fruit of which we'll be like is something so much more real, uh, so much more meaningful than anything that we probably are used to thinking about or talking about. And yet, different, and yet scaled up in some way, leveled up in some way. He can uh, appear in a room that's locked and closed. He can ascend somehow into heaven, uh, as he does at the beginning of the book of Acts. And there is some kind of new thing that's happened with Jesus. Well, the scriptures are very clear about what it is. The scriptures over and over call it new creation. Uh, behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation is the way that Paul actually puts it. He doesn't, in the Greek, actually say he is a new creation. He just says, if anyone's in Christ, and then he, he outbursts, new creation has come. New creation is real. And so somehow this happened with Jesus uh, very historically 2,000 years ago, and it's going to happen to us very historically sometime in the future. And so what does this mean for our life now? Does this change anything for faith and for life and for worship and for prayer and for scripture reading and for all of the things that we do in our faith now? And so I'm going to read to you for just a moment from John chapter 5. And um, this isn't on the screen I just want you to hear this, this is a, a story about Jesus healing someone, and I want you to be able to take it in and think about what's happening here with me. So John chapter 5, uh, this, is, this took place at a feast in Jerusalem, we don't know for sure which feast, uh, but the, of course Jesus' passion, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection also happened at a feast, probably a different feast. Uh, at Passover, but this also happened at a feast in Jerusalem, right after they would have come up to the city uh, on a pilgrimage, just like we were studying about last month, and they would have probably been singing those songs of ascent on their way up to the feast, so uh, this feast in John 5 goes this way. There was a feast after this in uh, Jerusalem, and Jesus went up. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, and in Aramaic, it was called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, so it had some nice shade around it. And in these, probably under the shade, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So there's a lot of people here who need mercy, who need some help. Uh, And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, quite a time uh, to be there laying under these colonnades in the shade, paralyzed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been lying there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? It's a funny question, isn't it? Of course I want to be healed. Of course, I'll take whatever you got, Jesus. Of course I want to be healed. But Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? As he often, uh, through scripture, asks you and me, do you want to be healed? Do you really want what I have to offer? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. There's a little backstory here. Uh, The people believed that if you could be the first one in the pool when the waters were stirred, that you would get a miraculous healing. So we don't know if that was the way it was really working or if that was legend. That's just some backstory. But the man believes it. And so he says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down another steps down before me. So while he's trying uh, from his mat, from his paralyzed position on his mat to get into the water, somebody always beats him down there. And so for 38 years, he's been trying to find some healing. Uh, In other words, that's all to say from that man, yeah, of course I want to be healed, Jesus. I try every single time to get healed, and I'm never fast enough. Like, I can never get there first. I can't get healed. And so Jesus said to the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. And so Jesus is going to break through all of the other presuppositions about how healing takes place instead of waiting and, and rushing in and being the first one in the pool Jesus could pick him up and toss him in the pool whenever the waters are stirred Jesus with his power could have probably just flicked him right off the edge with a little burst of spirit power some right into the water when the waters were stirred you know but instead of doing anything like that and playing into this man's preconceived ideas he decides to show the power of God through him by saying to him more directly get up take your bed and walk And so the man does. At once he was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now from here the story gets kind of interesting because the Jews take great offense at what Jesus did because it was the Sabbath day, it was their day of rest, it was their Saturday, their day of worship when Jesus heals the man. And they're getting tired of Jesus doing these things on Sabbath. But they also take offense at the man. They take offense at the man who was healed. And this is something that I can't say that I'd ever really noticed before in this story until studying it a little bit more closely for this sermon series, that the man is also uh, criticized by the Jewish leaders. And so down in verse 10, it says, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. This goes contrary to everything any mother ever told her child on a Saturday, right? Pick up your room. Pick up your stuff, pick up your bed. The Jews, because of their law, because of their Sabbath law, say to the man, don't you know that on the Sabbath you're not allowed to roll up your mat? That's not work that's allowed for you. Now, of course, the Old Testament never said that. This was an interpretation of the law, a very strict interpretation of the law. But even though this is playing out in real life, this is a real life scenario with Jesus and the man and the Pharisees, there is something that is behind it on a spiritual level. There is something that is going on in the heavenly realms that is interacting with what's happening in the earthly realms in this story because so often the reality of our actions, our history, uh, miracles that may occur in our lives, healings in our family, these things show us some of the overlap of the ages, some of the overlap of the realms, that there is both a physical realm and a spiritual realm. There's a past age in which everything was corrupt, in which everything was dying, in which everything was Uh, as science would put it today, uh, this is the view of the cosmos today, is that everything is heading towards entropy, which means it's slowing down, it's cooling out, and eventually the universe will spread out so far, The, the stars will eventually run out of material to burn, and they'll wink out one by one, and things will get so far apart that finally you won't see any starlight, and they'll die, and it'll be cold, and that'll be the end of the universe, unless some scientists think there'll be some kind of rebound or whatever, but that's entropy like that's the end of the universe well that's really what was happening before Jesus as people were dying they were going into the ground and they weren't coming back out again and that was, that was the end of life as we knew it. And now, when Jesus breaks onto the scene and he's healing people like this, people that are paralyzed, Jesus knows, although we don't know yet fully, well, we do because we're Christians, but the people here reading the story or seeing this in real life don't yet know fully that something remarkable is happening, that there's an overlap of heaven and earth that is beginning now that will never cease. It will always be this way. In fact, it'll grow more strongly throughout eternity. And that may be as hard for us to believe as Christians, because we think, yeah, we're still, it's still broken, it's still failing, uh, it doesn't seem like there's much of an overlap, it doesn't seem like there's much of a kingdom come happening here right now. But God says that there is, that the age to come has already begun. And I'll show you that with some scriptures in a moment. This is what they're, what they're doing, though, to the man, what they're saying to the man. They're saying, do not work on the Sabbath, even though Jesus healed you and made you able to. Don't pick up your mat. Don't walk on the Sabbath. You shouldn't have responded to his miracle on the Sabbath. We're not happy that you participated with this rule-breaking. And what is happening in the spiritual realm, I believe, is that these, these people are representing an attitude that says, Don't try to walk. Don't try to do something new. Don't, don't get so worked up and excited about Jesus has healed you and all this that it actually means something different. Stick with the old ways. The old ways. Follow the Sabbath. Don't get up and roll up your mat and walk. Sit back down, paralyzed man. Wait until Sunday. Why don't you pretend for one more day that your legs still don't work after 38 years? That's what they want from him. Pretend like the old ways are still the best ways. And I want you to uh, write down in your bulletin here, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down three things in the top section to think about as we look at these scriptures that we're about to look at. And the first one that you can write is walk with worth. That's a tongue twister. You could write walk worthily if you want. But worthily might be too hard to spell. I don't know. Walk worthily, walk with work, with worth. Walk with worth worthily. The second one is this, under the next dash there. Walk with love. Walk with love. We're going to use this story and we're going to come across some other passages today, and God's going to show us He wants us to use this healing that we've been given for some advantage. He wants us to walk with value, with worth, walk with love. And the third one is this walk carefully. Walk with care. So walk worthily, lovingly, and carefully. Worth love and care. Okay, let's look at some scriptures together this morning. Uh, Now that you have those in your bulletin and you're thinking about them with me, what what do these mean? What does this healing mean? How should we walk? So in John 5.21, this is just a little further in the chapter, Jesus now is having a confrontation with those same Jewish leaders. And this is uh, what they've accused him of, is you've done work on the Sabbath and you're acting like you're God because you're healing people and you're making these great claims. And so in John 5.21, Jesus says this. He says, yeah, you're right that I'm claiming to be divine. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. See, Jesus isn't backing down from the claim that he and his Father are involved in the same work. God gives life, I give life. What do you think, fellas? In verse 24, his conversation with them continues. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In other words, this is why this connection with God's work is so important. Whoever hears what Jesus says and believes God who sent him has eternal life. And then Jesus says this, which is truly amazing, a remarkable statement. He does not come into judgment, just like Romans 8.1 says, there's now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We'll look at that verse in a minute. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus says that something has already happened inside the person. That they've already made a transition into an age to come, into life, into something that should not be yet, but it is. And so there is this tension in Scripture where we we hear people talking about, like Jesus and Paul, like we're already saved and secure, and yet we know we haven't had our resurrection body yet. So what is this middle ground? What is this age between? What is this overlap in which some people tell us, don't walk Don't try to act like you've been healed. Don't act as if Christ has really done anything to make you different where now you could walk. But just stick with the old ways. Live in the old ways. Live with the fear. Live as if you're not worth anything. Live as if there is always going to be animosity instead of love. Right? Why is it that we're in this middle of the ages? Well, look at what Jesus says in the next verse. Right after saying you've already passed from death to life. Now Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming... And it is now here. Now this is important because Jesus will talk about hours and he means like there's a time or an era or an age or a moment of opportunity. And Jesus says this moment of opportunity has already arrived. It is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So this this scripture is not about the future resurrection. This is about an age that has already come. Like he said in the previous verse, they've passed from death to life. This is, of course, what we represent in our baptism when we we get into the water and we die with Christ and we're raised with him and we believe that in that, God works. That God actually raises our soul in some way from a, a, a verdict of death to a verdict of life in that moment. And Jesus is talking about this here. This is a moment that is now here. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life also in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. In other words, Jesus is saying this. God gave the son, Jesus Christ, the ability on earth right then in his time and his era to execute judgment. To decide for people who believed, I'm going to move you from death to life right now. Jesus had that ability. That's what we call the forgiveness of sins. He continues, don't marvel at this. Like, don't be surprised, for an hour is coming, now this one has not yet come, so this is an era or a moment or an opportunity that is still out there in the future. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so here Jesus is talking about that someday resurrection, the moment out in the future that we talked about a week ago. And Jesus, in one speech, in one talk with the Pharisees, after healing a man and commanding him to walk, to use to his advantage the healing he had been given, Jesus says there is part of this salvation that's already come, that you already have been healed, that you've already gone from death over to life, and yet there's part of it that won't come for a while, until the last day, until the resurrection until the consummation, until the fulfillment. And Jesus borrows here somewhat from an Old Testament passage. And last week we looked at a passage from Job. I want you to see Daniel 12 this morning because the Jews were beginning to anticipate through prophecy, through the Spirit's movement, that some truth like this was coming. They knew there was going to be this change in the ages, but they didn't know when and how it would come. And so Daniel prophesied this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, and this is the same word Jesus uses in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the same word that Jesus uses in the Greek translation of the New Testament when he says an hour has come. The moment of opportunity, the time is now. It is already here. And Daniel says, but at that time, at that hour, At that opportune moment, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Jesus is quoting from Daniel loosely, and he's using this reference to say, this moment is starting But not quite in the way Daniel foresaw, not quite in the way Daniel thought, because Jesus is saying, I'm going to expand what Daniel had to say, that there's actually two moments of opportunity. There's two todays, and one of them is the moment that you get in this life, the opportunity in this life to pass from death to life spiritually. The other moment that's contingent on that, that depends on your choice in this life, will be the moment that happens at the end of what we call time with the resurrection of the dead, and the resurrection of all, some to life and some to everlasting contempt. And so Jesus breaks this out and he says, now, kind of like you're taking a slinky and looking at the space in between the coils, we're going to talk about the time in between those two realities. And what do we do with it? In other words, the scriptures are showing us this. There are some things that are already, and there are things that are not yet. Yet. There's a fancy word for this in theology, and I always like to share some of these terms because I know you're going to come across them or hear them at some point, although they're not particularly important to you understanding the lesson. But the term is inaugurated eschatology, inaugurated eschatology, and this is what it means. Inaugurated means something that's already begun. It's been inaugurated. It has been launched, if you will. Launched could be another good word for this. Eschatology simply means the end things or the last things, the things that come at the end. And so eschatology is the discipline of talking about the end, about the afterlife, and what will happen at the end of the world, and when Christ comes back, and and when we're raised, and all of that. And so this is what the two terms together mean. Because for a long time, the church in the Western world, in in the modern Western world, had been talking about a different kind of end times, about a realized eschatology, where they thought everything had already come about Uh, This probably wasn't real common in our churches, but it was common in the world around us. And so inaugurated eschatology, it's launched, but it's not finished, simply means this. That there are some of the end time things, some of the things that that aren't going to be fully real until the end of time, that have been drawn back in a meaningful way into history now that they're actually already beginning to occur. This is like saying, you know, Jesus is raising people from the dead like Lazarus and doing miracles. This is end time kind of stuff drawn into the present. And so you could talk about it as there's already and there's not yet. There is an inaugurated eschatology. And as we think about this, uh, I want us to look at Romans 8 and I want you to I want you to think with me as we read these verses about some of the things that you may have experienced in life like me in which we, we already understand this concept of initiated but not consummated. Things that have been inaugurated but they're not finalized yet. And look at some of these things in Romans 8. In the middle of your uh, bulletin, you could write things that are already true on the left and things that are not yet true on the right. So on the left is things that are already and on the right is things that are not yet. So look at these verses in Romans 8. Only a few select scriptures. There is, in verse 1, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This isn't already. Right, church? This isn't already. There is now no condemnation. This is why you live with such security as we talked about uh, several weeks ago. Because Jesus has already testified over you in your baptism, in your being raised with Christ, that you're a child of God and there's therefore now no condemnation. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there's some not yet, right? The raising of your bodies. That's on the other side, the not yet. But look at verse 13. For if you live according to the spirit, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is, this is now. This is in the present time and in the future time. What you do now impacts what will come later. In fact, if you wanted, you could write Romans eight thirteen right along the word preparation, right in the middle. How are you preparing for eternity? In other words, how are you choosing to walk with the healing Jesus has given you? He's given you this healing. And there's certain elements and spiritual forces that would say to you, don't use it. Don't walk. Don't try. But how are you preparing in the meantime? And then look at these verses from the end of Romans 8, which we read a few weeks ago, about what's to come. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. So not yet is glory. Already is sufferings, but not yet is glory. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So again, a not yet that there's glory to be revealed. And I want you to think about with me, where else in life do you see these kinds of already and not yet playing out? And I've got a few suggestions for you to to think about. When Jenna and I were engaged, uh, just just about four and a half years ago now, we experienced an in-between age that everyone who is engaged to be married experiences. There is an inauguration There is even in our culture a first ring that's given and a second ring later that's to be given. But we inaugurated something, which is a pledge to each other, a pledge to walk with worth, to not act as if we don't deserve each other anymore, but to walk day to day, even though we're not married yet, as if we're worthy of each other because we've chosen each other and because we know our families and God is going to bless the commitment. We choose to walk in love daily, treating each other the way that we would want to be treated, treating each other in many ways the way that a man and wife would treat each other, with mutuality, with respect, with sharing of decisions and opinions, but not in every way that a man and wife treat each other after their marriage is consummated. There are certain intimacies, both physical and spiritual and emotional, that simply should not and cannot be shared until after the consummation. And yet, in the middle age, we walked carefully with each other, knowing that we had value and worth, knowing that we were walking in love, and yet knowing that this is not a time to stumble and to start acting with all of our very worst parts of ourselves, with our greed, with our impatience, with our fears, We couldn't be controlled by those things. We had to walk carefully, especially because we weren't yet consummated. And you can think of other examples like this. We get accepted to a college or a school, but maybe we're not enrolled yet. We haven't graduated yet, certainly. And there's an in-between time of preparation. Or uh, adolescence is a great example of a time in life when we're on our way to something so good and we know it but we haven't yet arrived there at fully-fledged adulthood. And so we walk with love and with worth, but also with care in all of these in-between ages in life. And so we're gonna end today with this scripture from Ephesians chapter two, where Paul says, because we know these things, then how do you live? And he said to the church in Ephesus, but this is so good for us too, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. This is the already. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. Notice how he speaks about this in a past tense. The raising of our souls or our spirits. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, the not yet, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, and this is the now, the overlap of the ages, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And don't let any power of this age Any power in the spiritual realm or any person in this world tell you that you're not worth enough or that you can't walk in enough love or with enough care to walk out the reality of your past transition from death to life and your future resurrection in life now. Because this is what we do when we worship. We look at baptism and we know that it points back to Christ and to his death and resurrection, but it also points forward to our own resurrection. It draws from the past and the future together. We take communion, the Lord's Supper, and we know that it was his body that was broken 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, but we also know that Jesus said this, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. And so it draws from the future meal with Christ as well. And from the past and from the future, we draw both of those strengths into the now. And Jesus says, walk in it. And Paul picks up on this theme in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. When at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, walk with worth. In the beginning of chapter 5, he says, walk therefore in love. In chapter 5, verse 15, he says, walk therefore in love with care. This is the life in the middle age. If we can offer to help you in any way, maybe you've not yet been raised in the Spirit, you haven't transitioned from death to life, and you want to be baptized and receive that gift of God, we can do it this morning. We'll help you in any other way, and our shepherds will be both at the front and in the back to pray with you or to meet you. Please come and share with us as we stand and sing.